Take your Bibles, if you would, and turn to the book of Ezra. Ezra chapter 9. We're, we're almost done with the book of Ezra before we move into the book of, of Nehemiah. But Ezra chapter 9, and we'll begin reading in verse 1. After these things, that's after the, the second group of exiles had returned, after these things had been done, the officials approached me and said, The people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their abominations, from the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Perizzites, the Jebusites, the Ammonites, the Moabites, the Egyptians, and the Amorites. For they have taken some of their daughters to be wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the peoples of the land. And in this uh, faithlessness, the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. As soon as I heard this, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled a hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And at the evening sacrifice I rose from my fasting with my garment and my cloak torn and fell upon my knees and spread out my hands to the Lord my God saying, Oh my God, I am ashamed and blushed to lift my face to you. My God, for our iniquities has risen higher than our heads and our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. From the days of our fathers to this day, we have been in great guilt, and for our iniquities, uh, we, our kings, and our priests have been given into the hand of the kings of the land, to the sword, to captivity, to plundering, and to utter shame, as it is today. But now, for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us as a remnant and to give us a secure hold within his holy place, that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us his steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving to set up the house of our God to repair its ruins and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. And now, O God, which shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments, which you commanded by your servants, the prophets, saying, The land that you are entering to take possession of it is a land impure with the impurity of the peoples of the land, with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. Therefore do not give your daughters to their sons, neither take their daughters for your sons, and never seek their peace or prosperity, that you may be strong and eat the good of the land, and leave it for an inheritance to your children forever. And after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt, seeing that you, our God, have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a remnant as this, shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations. Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us 
so there should be no remnant nor any to escape. O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped. And as it is today, behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. The Bible tells us that the grass that is outside, the beautiful flowers that are in your flower beds, all those things will fade away. But the word of our God will stand forever. Amen. You may be seated. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank you for the blessing of your word. We thank you for the blessing of your presence here today. That God, you've not just given us the written words on this page and said, here, have at it. But it is actually your spirit that comes and speaks your word to your people. And we would pray that that would be the case this morning. That, Lord, you would bury your word deep within our hearts. That it might bear fruit, uh, God, in a way that would glorify you. Lord, in a way that would change us and make us like our Savior, Jesus. We pray these things in your name. Amen. Well, one of the things that uh, preaching through books of the Bible, as opposed to the preacher just picking out topics, is that you end up sometimes dealing with topics that that may be a little bit more difficult or challenging that you might want to go through. It might be that you'd rather prefer just to skip over those things, but because it's the next thing in the text, you have to deal with it. And so this morning we get the privilege of looking at the topic of intermarriage. And, and just for, you, for, for kids, for you that may not know, uh, Webster defines intermarriage as marriage between members of different groups. And so that could be different classes, different social classes, different tribes, different races, different ethnicities. And, and, and it raises the question really more broadly, does God really care about who I marry? And the answer is yes. God really does care about who you marry. And, and we see in our text that the Israelites had intermarried with the nations around them. Um, Look at verses 1 and 2. It said, after these things had been done, uh, there's most likely been about four months of time that has passed between when the exiles had returned and offered the sacrifice and these events that we have before us. And it says the officials, and we don't know specifically who these officials are, they approached me, that is Ezra, and they said the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the lands with their uh, abominations. And, you know, it, it, it isn't said here in the text, but many commentators believe that uh, Ezra, because we see back in chapter 7, it says that he came to preach the word of the Lord. And to, in one sense, now that the temple's been completed, he's now come to complete the covenant community, to call them to biblical faithfulness. And, and many commentators believe that what's been happening for these four months is Ezra's been preaching the word of God and the people, these leaders, are hearing this and they're responding in repentance to, to lay out the sin before Ezra. We don't know that for a fact, but he goes through and he talks about how they have married with the Canaanites, the Hittites, all the other ites of the Bible. And I think it's interesting that they just throw in Egypt. It's like, what happened to that? But, you know, anyway. So they, they married him. It says, for they have taken some of their daughters 
to be wise for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race has mixed itself with the people of the land, and in their faithlessness the hand of the officials and chief men has been foremost. So we see that God's people, and especially the leadership over Israel, is committing this great sin against God. And you say, well, where does it say it's a sin? Well, it implies it here, but if you look down at verse 12, it says that this goes against the commandment of the Lord, this intermarrying that they've been doing. And some commentators believe that because of the prophet Malachi, he was a contemporary to Ezra, that you know, he, when he was addressing the situation of priests and divorce, if you remember from reading the book of Malachi, that he was talking about this situation, that the priests were divorcing their Jewish wives so that they might marry foreign wives. Well, we don't know that for a fact, but we do know that the priests and Levites and other, and other leaders of Israel were taking foreign wives. Now, how do we understand this topic of intermarriage? And it's important to understand because the church has not always handled this topic well. As a matter of fact, probably uh, as recent as the 1960s, probably even more recent than that, but definitely it was true in the 1960s, Christians would argue against intermarriage and for segregation in marriage. So that whites should marry whites and blacks should marry blacks and Asians should marry Asians and so on and so forth. And they would use passages like Ezra chapter 9 to make their point. So what does the Bible say about intermarriage? Is God more partial to one race over another race? And the answer is simply this. No. No. And that being the case, then what is going on in Ezra 9? What is God telling us in our text today? And in one sense, while this passage is dealing with the topic of intermarriage, it's, it's really in a broader context as we look at chapter 10 along with chapter 9 next week. Uh, we're going to see it's really talking about the topic of sin. And intermarriage is just the particular circumstance. It's just the particular sin that's being done here. And so in one sense, we're going to be talking about intermarriage, but even more broadly, we're going to be talking about sin in our text today. And, and, and I want us to see to what extent is intermarriage a, a sin. And we're going to talk about that in a minute. But the first point that I want us to see is uh, Ezra's biblical reaction to sin. What does it look like when we react to sin in our own lives or in the church or in our culture or whatever, and when we do that biblically? And, and the short answer is Ezra was appalled by Israel's sin. He was appalled by Israel's sin. God had brought his people back safely to Jerusalem. And as we read in Ezra chapter 8, verse 22, uh, which was proven over and over and over, the hand of our God is for good on all who seek him, and the power of his wrath is against all who forsake him. And God had shown his goodness to Israel. The good hand of the Lord had been upon them, and he had caused this second group of exiles to return and he had gotten them back safely even though they had all this wealth that they had with them remember kids uh, the African elephants you know they had that much gold and silver and stuff that they brought back with them and but once they got back that it wasn't these newly 
we turned Israelites, but it was actually the local officials who pointed out the sins of the people. And it says here, the people of Israel, in verse 1, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the peoples of the land with their abominations. Now that phrase, with their abominations, is a very helpful phrase as we consider this topic of intermarriage and what God is, is talking about. Uh, the abominations that, that Ezra is referring to is the false moral and religious beliefs and the practices of the pagan people. And, and it's sort of here that we begin to dig into the sensitive subject of intermarriage and, and we begin to see what God's talking about as we wrestle with the question, does the Bible outright condemn intermarriage? And the answer, again, is, is no. And the reason I say that, that it's not talking about intermarriage in terms of uh, marriage between different ethnicity, is because if you look at the examples in the Bible, you see that that's not how God treats things. For example, who did Joseph marry but an Egyptian woman? Who, who did Moses marry but a Gentile woman? And what is God's disposition towards the nation? Is God partial to Israel only? Some people want to look at verse 2 and say that Israel was a holy race. That's the words that are used here in the ESV. And so, you know, as opposed maybe to the other nations that were an unholy race. But it's important to note a couple of things as we sort of step back from this passage. And of course, you know, we know that the Bible should interpret the Bible, right? We should look at what the Bible as a whole says. And it's important to note two things about the relationship with God and Israel. First of all, that God has separated a people for himself for the purpose of Israel's spiritual holiness and not their ethnic distinction. It's important to understand that God was setting them apart for their spiritual holiness and not their ethnic distinction. And also, the second thing we need to understand is that by this time, people from all sorts of different nations had attached themselves to Israel and were warmly received. For example, in the Exodus, you know, God didn't draw an ethnic line in the sand even when Israel came out of Egypt. And in fact, there were those who proselytized into Israel even in the Exodus and joined the people as they left. You think about Ruth, uh, the Moabitess, who married Boaz, the Judite, and was incorporated not only into the people of God, but in, even into the royal line of King David, as we see in Ruth chapter 4. Now, it would have been impossible for Ruth to marry Boaz if this was over a racial or a cultural thing. Ruth, uh, as a Moabitess, would ordinarily be forbidden to marry a Jew. As a matter of fact, in Deuteronomy 23.3, Deuteronomy 23.3, the prostitute, right, who helped the spies in capturing Jericho um, when she converted, then she was able to go and to live amongst the people of God. Even here in Ezra, in chapter 6, verse 21, uh, we see Gentiles attaching themselves to the people of God. Once the, the temple had been rebuilt, we read that the Israelites celebrated the Passover, and this is what it says in Ezra 6, 21. It was eaten by the people of Israel who had returned from exile, and also by everyone who had joined them and separated themselves from the uncleanness of the peoples of the land to worship the Lord, the God of Israel. 
that the Gentiles that have forsaken the ways that they had and followed the Lord were able to, to be part of God's people. Well, if God received a select people from other nations into the community of his people, then why is there this prohibition against intermarriage? And, I, and to, to answer that, you have to look at verse 1. And, and you look at this list of people, these ites that are here, the Moabites and the Amorites and, and others that are here. And, and, and you see that that's the same list of people that you see back in the list in Exodus and Deuteronomy and other places. These were the inhabitants of the land. And Israel was to remain separate from these people after Israel had conquered the land. Why? Well, it really had nothing to do with ethnicity. And it has everything to do with their religion, with what Ezra calls their abominations. And, and just so you can get a better picture of this, if you look at Ezra chapter 10 and verse 10, Ezra says to the people later, you have broken faith and married foreign women. So it had to do with the fact that they had broken the faith that they had with the Lord and following Him. It wasn't the fact that they were mixing ethnicities but that they had broken faith. So the sin had to do with their faith, with their abominations. Now, abominations, kid, that's not words you probably use a lot, I'm guessing, in your household, right? You don't go around saying, wow, that was an abomination, you know, to your parents or anything like that. So what do we mean by that? Well, it means something that's grotesquely detestable which, or something that's very repulsive or, or offensive. Maybe that is a word you understand, kids. It's very offensive in the sight of God. It's not something that makes God just a little unhappy, but things that make God very angry, something, things that incur His wrath. And God didn't want His people to intermarry with the nations because He knew that if they did, that they would be seduced by the religion of the land, which is the whole point. Now, how does that sort of interface with our, our world today? And I want you young people to hear this. I know we don't have many young people that are of dating age or of courting age, but we got a lot that are right on the cusp of it, right? They're just, they're moving into those teen years and the parents are like, Pastor Rick, be quiet. I don't want to hear this. I don't want to deal with this, but you know, it's coming. Okay. And you young people, you know, you're going to be thinking about this right now. Maybe the girls still have cooties. I don't know. Maybe you're thinking, well, they don't look so bad anymore. You know, I don't know where you're at. But this whole idea of missionary dating is a foolish endeavor. You know, and what I mean by that, young people, is this. That when you, that when you as a Christian find somebody that you like, but they're not a believer, and you think, you know what, I'm going to date them or I'm going to court them, with the idea that, you know, maybe they can become a Christian. That's a foolish endeavor. God says, He forbids that, that we ought not to enter into a relationship in that way. And, and the greatest example of this is found right in the Bible, and it's with King Solomon. He was the wisest man who ever lived, and yet he was the greatest fool who ever existed. And, and what do I mean by that? You know, how could he be wise and yet a fool? Well, he was wise because God gave him great wisdom, but he was a fool because he married foreign pagan wives that led his heart astray, which became his downfall, and he then found himself led into pagan practices. You see, when you get married, 
or even if you're in a dating relationship, you want to please the person that you're with. And that's true of Solomon. He wanted to give his wives what they wanted, and they wanted to share their religious practices with him. And he, he didn't want to displease them. And, and, and so he did what they wanted. But the problem was, is what they wanted was an abomination. It was a great offense in the sight of God. You see, God knew that his people could not love him and pagan spouses. And so God commands his people, and he still does it today, brothers and sisters, to date only in the Lord, to marry only in the Lord. In other words, only those who are believers. Why? Because once you give your heart away, your soul is not long behind. Once you give your heart away, your soul is not long behind. And in verse 2, Israel is given this beautiful title, a holy race, or, or another way to say this would be the holy people unto God, a beloved, precious, and holy, cherished people. And they were that way, not because they were Jewish, but because God has set his affections upon them. And when he did that, he set them apart, just like a man does a woman who becomes his bride. When he proposes to her and he says, will you marry me? And she said, yes. And he has set her apart in a special relationship with him. And that's what made Israel holy and beautiful in the sight of God. Therefore, they were to follow God in all their ways. And in setting them apart, God was not interested. And I don't mean to be crass in this uh, description. But in setting them apart, God was not interested in a love triangle. He wasn't okay if his people, if his bride, loved someone else as well. God was not and is not interested in sharing the hearts of his people with the gods of this world. If you want to put it in our language that we exist in, God's not okay with an open marriage. God is a jealous God for his bride. And he wants her heart because he loves her. We read in verse 3 that, that Ezra heard this news and he says, I tore my garment and my cloak and pulled my hair from my head and beard and sat appalled. You know, as somebody who has a beard, I can very much appreciate that verse. Sometimes the grandkids get a hold of that beard and they pull it and it's like, ah, I couldn't imagine if they jerked so hard that the hair came out of the beard, but sometimes it feels like it is going to. But but, but the point here is, is that he was appalled. Kids, that's another word that we don't use a lot. That I'm appalled. But it's another word that talks about a, a strong reaction to sin. It means to be shocked at sin. It means you, you don't even know what to say you're so shocked. Every fab, fabric, fabric of your being is offended by it. And so Ezra is now appalled, not because he or God is a hater of Gentiles, but a hater of sin. And this sin is so grievous in the sight of God that Ezra tore his garments and pulled his hair from his head and his beard. Uh, Ezra humbled himself before the Lord. We see later on that, that Ezra goes from a time of fasting, and which is another way, as we talked about last week, of humbling ourselves before the Lord. Now, we use that phrase, pulling out your hair, but we don't really see people do that. But, but Ezra, you know, he actually did that. And, and for Ezra, the best of times has become the worst of times. 
Look at verse 4. Then all who trembled at the words of the God of Israel because of the faithlessness of the returned exiles gathered around me while I sat appalled until the evening sacrifice. And then verse 5 tells us that Ezra rose from his fasting with his clothes torn. He fell on his knees. He, he spread out his hands and he began to pray. And, and that's the rest of the text is this prayer of confession, of intercession that he makes before the Lord on behalf of the people. Uh, and we see several things. That when we come before the Lord to, to confess our sins, that true confession acknowledges the corporate nature of sin. It acknowledges the corporate nature of sin. It's interesting about Ezra's prayer is, is that he's not praying for his own sin, but rather he's praying for the congregation. It's a corporate prayer a confession. He begins in verse 6 by saying, I, I, I. And it's not very long before he switches to the third person talking about our iniquities, including himself. He says, For our iniquities have risen higher than our heads. Our guilt has mounted up to the heavens. In other words, Ezra feels the weight of the sin of the people and of the leaders. And he confesses that before the Lord. And Ezra identifies himself with the people of God. They were in effect one people and the sins of others affected him and everyone else. And of course, while it's always appropriate for us to confess our own sins, our own personal sins, there's also those times where we confess our corporate sins as well. And they may be the sins of our nation, they may be the sins of our cities or our churches or our families. Uh, they, as one person put it, they said, they're no one's fault in particular, but they're everyone's fault in general. And so we come to the Lord confessing our sins, and God holds us responsible not only for our own individual sins, but also sometimes for the sins of the group. And that's why so many great heroes of the faith in the Old Testament, such as Daniel and Ezra and others, pray uh, and confess the sins of the nation that they belong to. The second thing we see about this prayer of confession is that true confession acknowledges the comprehensive nature of our sin. The comprehensive nature of our sin. As you look at Ezra, he begins to pray and, and you get the sense of, of the sin as being recent, but he also begins to recount Israel's sin in the past as well. Um, he reflects on the history of Israel, reminding them that the sin that they're committing is not new. Not only has Israel fallen into great sin, but Israel has been there before, returning to her old ways, to the sins of her ancestors. This is the sin that led to Israel's downfall and led Israel into captivity in the first place. If you, if you want to put it this way, I, I don't think this is going too far, but you could sort of say this is Israel's great besetting sin. They were constantly flirting with the nations and their religious abominations. A great example of this is Numbers chapter 25. You can go back and read that later, but it's an account that I'm sure you're probably familiar with as I begin to tell you, you know, that Israel is worshiping the Lord. And then they began, uh, as it says in the text, to whore with Moab. They began to fall into the false worship of the Moabites. And, uh, and they did. And as they did, the Lord brought a plague upon them. But they persevered in their, uh, their, the abominations of the nations and the sins against God. Even this account tells the story of a young Jewish man who takes a Moabitess woman into a tent 
to consummate the relationship right in front of Israel. And they go in and people are just standing there. They're flaunting their sin that much. And Phineas, the priest, takes a spear and goes into the tent and pins them to the ground. And God stops the plague. That's Israel's past. It's very much like what the writer of Proverbs says. Like a dog that returns to his vomit is a fool who repeats his folly. And here's Israel once again sort of licking it up. Just back in the land not very long and they're already doing the same thing. It's not that been that long ago when they were in captivity where they had long years of being separated from God, being separated from the temple and fellowship with God and separated from His blessing. And as we said earlier, so went their hearts, so went their bodies and their souls into captivity. The third thing we see about confession this morning is, is that true confession acknowledges God's past compassion towards our sin. It acknowledges God's past compassion toward our sin. Ezra points out God's grace to Israel in verses 8 and 9. But now for a brief moment, favor has been shown by the Lord our God to leave us a remnant and to give us a secure hold within His holy place that our God may brighten our eyes and grant us a little reviving in our slavery. For we are slaves, yet our God has not forsaken us in our slavery, but has extended to us His steadfast love before the kings of Persia to grant us some reviving, to set up the house of our God, to repair its ruins, and to give us protection in Judah and Jerusalem. Basically, that, those verses are a summation of Ezra chapter 1, uh, chapters 1 through 8. And Ezra is saying, the Lord has been good to us. Uh, even though, he says in verse 9, we are slaves. God's chosen people, yet slaves again, but God has not forsaken us. Instead, God has restored us and brought us back and made us a remnant. You see, God is a jealous God for the hearts of His people. And his love, brothers and sisters, is so strong that it will not overlook us flirting with sin. Rather, God's love for us is so jealous that he calls us away from sin. That God will not share us with our sin. Now, all of us have been to weddings, I'm sure. But of all the weddings that you've been to, have you ever recounted a time when the bride and the groom stood up there in front to, to take their vows before the preacher, fully planning on sharing their spouse with somebody else on the honeymoon? Forgive me once again for being crass, but I just want us to see, we would look at that and we say, no, oh, that's gross, no, that's awful. I mean, what couple gets married thinking they're going to get a divorce? We, instead, we get married with a proper sense of jealousy where we will not spare our, our spouse with anyone. We want them heart and mind and body and soul, and rightly so. Well, if that's true for us, how much more is God holy and right in his jealousy towards the hearts of his people. 
to not share us with the sins of this world and the abominations of this world. But here is Israel once again cheating on God with the nations. And Ezra is appalled. I, I think it's interesting. One uh, commentator on, on this passage made, made the designation. They said Ezra's response to the rebellion wasn't like the resigned position of sin. You know, sometimes we just sort of resign ourselves that we live in a fallen world, right? Um, and we shouldn't be surprised by sin. Yeah, we can be saddened by it, but we're not surprised. And I, I have to admit, I've, I've been guilty of that too. People tell me something, I'm like, yeah, it doesn't surprise me. I've been a pa pastor for a lot of years. I've seen a lot of things, you know. And so sometimes we can just sort of have that attitude about sin. So it's just sort of a resigned position. Other people have sort of a retaliatory approach. Well, just wait till I get my hands on them. Then I'll give them a, a piece of my mind. But instead, Ezra had a repentant response. He recognized the heinousness of sin. And, it's, and he's appalled by it, which leads him to, to end his prayer in a spirit of resignation. Where Ezra cast himself and, Ez, and Israel entirely on the mercy of God. And that's the last thing I want you to see about this confession, that it acknowledges our current need for God's mercy. That's where confession of sin leads us, that we need God's mercy. What does Hezra say in verse 10? And now, O God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. In other words, what, what, what can we say? What can we do? see, Ezra asked this question because he asked no answer. There's, there's nothing that we can do when we are confronted with our sin. And, and Ezra doesn't attempt to justify what the people had done. He doesn't try to excuse it. He doesn't do what, you know, Adam did in the garden. What's the woman you gave me? She, she's the one. Yeah, wasn't me. It was her. Look at her. You know, he didn't do that. And, but rather, almost like an attorney... Uh, Ezra brings the charges against God's people, showing that God would be just to do whatever he desired to do. Look at verses 10 and 11. And he said, And now, O our God, what shall we say after this? For we have forsaken your commandments. In other words, you've sent your prophets. You've told us what to do, Lord, and yet we have not listened to you. The land that you are entering to take possession of, it's a land impure, with the impurity of the peoples of the land with their abominations that have filled it from end to end with their uncleanness. And so therefore God says, because they have not followed my ways, because they've lived in the abominations, don't intermarry with them. Don't give in to their religion. Don't forsake your God. Don't have a love triangle. Because I love you so much and I am jealous for you. And you are mine and you are mine only. So don't give yourselves to others and yet Israel disobeyed the commands of God and it's not that Ezra doesn't believe in forgiveness but he is so overwhelmed by the sense of the guilt of the people that he says uh, in verses 13 and 14 he said and after all that has come upon us for our evil deeds and for our great guilt seeing that you our God have punished us less than our iniquities deserved and have given us such a, a remnant as this. In other words, God, you've been so good to us. You've not treated us the way that we should. You allowed us to come out of exile. 
And so shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? You see, Ezra didn't ask for forgiveness, not because he didn't think that God can't forgive, but lest he appeared to make light of Israel's condition. So he contemplates maybe even the possibility that he and his brothers and sisters have reached the limit of God's patience. Look at verse 14. Shall we break your commandments again and intermarry with the peoples who practice these abominations? Would you not be angry with us until you consumed us so that there should be no remnant nor any to escape? There is a patience, a limit to, to God's patience. And, and Amos, the prophet, talks about this. Uh, if you read his preaching, a phrase he uses over and over, he says, for three transgressions and for four. Um, in other words, what he's saying is that the judgment of God didn't come the first time around or the second time around, but maybe the third or the fourth time around. There was patience, but there came a time when that patience ran out and judgment would come. Now, we know that that will be the case because one day all of humanity will stand before God and give an account for their relationship with God or their lack of relationship with God. And we know that with, with God's people, His patience will not run out. But He will continue to discipline us and draw us to Himself. And Ezra is aware that neither he nor God's people have a leg to stand on before God. That's what I want you to see in this section. That they understand that what they need is God's mercy. He says in verse 15, And the O Lord, the God of Israel, you are just, for we are left a remnant that has escaped as it is today. Behold, we are before you in our guilt, for none can stand before you because of this. In other words, God, we have no hope save your mercy. And so we come to the end of the text. And as uh, Dickens would say in his tale of two cities, it was the best of times and, this is, and it's the worst of times. This is the worst of times, brothers and sisters. But this chapter is not the end of the book. And it's not the end of the story. We'll continue on next week. But Ezra, the priest and the intercessor for Israel, really points us forward to Christ who is our intercessor for us. There is one who's unlike Ezra, one who is a sinless. He's a prophet, priest, and king who will not intermarry, who will not compromise, who will not flirt with the nations, who will not give his heart away, who will not be guilty of missionary dating or marriage. One who is sinless, and yet one who identifies with our sin with our sin and our shame and our guilt. And of course, I'm speaking of Christ. He stands in our place that the harm may come upon Him instead of us. He's rightly appalled at our sin, but He accomplishes what Ezra cannot in Ezra 9. He stands, Christ stands in the courtroom of God with the weight of our sin, and He takes the punishment for us. He does that which we cannot do. Brothers and sisters, only a return to the gospel 
can cure this kind of guilt. If you're here this morning and you've been struggling with sin and you realize that you have been like the Israelites and you have been whoring with the nations, you've been living in sin and, and yet you come to church on Sunday morning looking all good and holy and righteous and like great people and yet you know that your heart has been far away from the Lord the only hope you have is to turn to Christ and to ask for his mercy casting yourself on the mercy of God and Jesus with a heartfelt commitment that he should have everything there is of us you see, Jesus intercedes on behalf of his people. Why? Well, not simply because we're sinners, but because God truly wants our hearts, brothers and sisters. He doesn't simply want your Sunday mornings. He doesn't want the convenient edges of your life. He wants all of you. He doesn't say, give me part and you can have the rest. God wants you. He doesn't need you, but he wants you because he loves you. He, he's not interested in sharing your heart nor your love with the world. And while the Bible doesn't speak against intermarriage as we might think of it today, it does speak against giving our hearts away to that which displeases God. And so that raises the question as we close today, does God have your heart does God have your heart? Are you a part of this holy race? Not because of your ethnicity, but because of your spiritual identity in Jesus Christ. And if so, does He have your heart? Let's bow our heads. Take a moment just to meditate upon the word that's preached this morning. this morning that we would be appalled by our sin there's not a person that can come here this morning and hear these words and not without thinking of the sins that we have committed this week but Lord let us not treat our sin lightly let us be overwhelmed let us be appalled so it might drive us to the mercy of the one and only who can save us. The one and only who is our Savior and our Lord. Oh God, forgive us for too often being involved in a love triangle. Capture our hearts, O oh Lord. Cause us to love you and you only as you love us.
we pray in your name. Amen.